I think that the movie is doing that deliberately, right? Because I do think they're they're trying to engage with an ambiguity of is this guy actually magical or not? Because the longer we're able to believe that maybe he is, the more we're willing to get fooled by what's happening. Welcome, friends, to episode 249 of the Ink to Film podcast, where we read the book and then see the movie. I'm writer Luke Elliott. And I'm filmmaker James Bailey. And this week we discuss Stephen Milhauser's 1990 short story and Neil Berger's 2006 film, The Illusionist. So, James, I wanted to know, have you ever tried to learn any magic? Are you a, yeah. are you an amateur magi- magician at all? I definitely had a little magic kick. We're talking like maybe a couple months, but yeah. I was like watching David Blaine and doing, you know, <laughs> watching like, uh, what's the other guy's name? Angel. Oh, Chris, Chris Angel. Angel. <laughs> yeah. Like Mind that kind freak. of stuff. And yeah. Mind freak. Yeah. And uh, I think like I had, I bought, uh, magic shops were really cool too. I remember going to a few magic shops and buying some of the stuff and it was always fun to try to learn the tricks, but I never, I never dove into it as much as I would have hoped. Sounds like a little more than me then. Um, I had a phase where I definitely tried to learn some like card tricks and sleight of hand stuff, but I immediately realized it was not for me. I just didn't have the like coordination, the 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 memory for like exactly how to do all these little finicky things. And you have to be so precise um, and to fool people is just so hard. Um, I have a lot of respect for it, right? Like whenever people are incredibly good at this stuff, it really amazes me, so... Um, I was definitely interested by it, but just could never, never pull it off, honestly. So I never, got, I never got super into it. Admittedly, I never got good enough to trick anybody. It was more just like <laughs> I tried some stuff. I got like a wallet that would like, you'd like set it on fire and then slap it shut, that kind of thing. <laughs> That's pretty cool. <laughs> yeah. I mind, none of mine involve fire. <laughs> just like the little magic trick kind of uh knickknacks that you can buy i remember getting so i mean and and that's i bring it up because we're covering the illusionist so we're, we're talking about uh magic and uh we read the short story which is called eisenheim the illusionist by stephen milhauser which we'll start off with i think let's talk about this first um it's pretty short you know i think it was like 20 pages um, available for free online yeah if you're curious you can you can find it and yeah, let's let's focus on that first, I guess. We had both seen, just for a quick history with the, the material, we had both seen this before, right? Right, yeah. But we also talked when we were selecting the project how we we didn't remember it a ton, but we, I kind of remember sure liking didn't. it. I remember thinking, I remember having a good time. I think I saw it in the theater in 2006, is my guess. So it's been, you know, what, over 15 years now. So yep. a lot of that has been lost to time until, until watching it this time. Um, but yeah, I'm going to hold off on all the thoughts I have about the movie, I guess. But uh, as far as the short story goes, I had never read this before. This was brand new to me. I actually didn't even know how old it was when I was reading it. I didn't look up when it was published until after I read it, um, which was a little surprising because I thought this was an older story than 1990. Yeah, um, because it felt so. like it was written in like an old style. Um, now, it is kind of like a history it feels like uh, you're almost reading like a biography of Eisenheim. And so that gives it kind of like a textbook feel. Uh, and, and maybe that's contributing to it feeling a little older. It could really just be from any time. 
yeah, that's Based the thing. That. Um, and it, it's like a almost like a like a contemporary of his was writing a biography about him, so it had the feel of like the person writing it. Do you think that the time period it's set in? like maybe made you think it was a little bit older as well well that that's possible yeah i don't know it, it just it was interesting effect because i was thinking i was going to look it up and it was like oh this is going to be a story from 1945 or 1961 or i don't know somewhere in that range like an older story but no 1990 um and so then i looked into the author and uh stephen milhauser still alive um he is uh, according to wikipedia 79 years old now He's an American novelist and short story writer. He won a Pulitzer uh, for his fiction and for his novel, specifically Martin Dressler in 1997. Um, so, you know, has other things he's well known for, but it looks like he's most well known for this story now just because of the adaptation, I think. Right. And anytime you get a, a, an adaptation that uh, at least does OK you know, that's going to become the thing you're known for, for better or worse. I don't know if this, like, I, I kind of doubt this is his best story, but um, now he's really not well known for it. He did have um, another novel that he was well known for called Edwin Mulhouse. Um, and that was in 1972 was his debut. And apparently it did pretty well. You know, I, I was looking into him uh, as a New York guy, grew up in Connecticut, uh, has his bachelor's from Columbia. He then pursued a doctorate at Brown um, so kind of an Ivy League, uh, New York, you know, that New England writer. And he went to, sounds like he was in a lot of the like academic literary circles. And it seems like a lot of his fiction, just from the little bit I was able to find, straddles that line between like fantasy and literary. He likes to play with that. And I, that's definitely on display here. Um, some of It sounds like some of his stuff is like full on fantasy, um, although... You know, I, I'd be curious to know if he like embraces that or, or, you know, tries to stay away from that label. Because as we as we've talked about, genre can sometimes be viewed in a negative light, especially when you're on the like literary highbrow side of, of fiction writing. Yeah. But we like it when people lean into it, you know, yeah. embrace it. Yeah. I do think it's it is those lines are being blurred more and more these days. Um, not to say there aren't like staunch holdouts. There absolutely are. But um, I don't know. It's just it. It's an interesting sort of uh, conversation within the writing circles, but I, I still don't know how interesting it is to people outside of it. <laughs> but if you're within these circles, it's you'll occasionally find people are very passionate about it. And it always catches me by surprise. He, he released this collection called the Barnum Museum in 1990. Uh, this story, Eisenheim, the illusionist, was the final story in the collection. There must be something at play there with like barnum and bailey circus kind of thing right if he's releasing something under the name barnum uh the barnum museum yeah so the barnum museum i guess let me look it's based off of a real place i believe barnum museum is in bridgeport connecticut with a collection related to pt barnum which is is that barnum yeah. and bailey yeah i believe so okay yeah so it, it it seems like the the collection and i'm looking at like the even just like the uh artwork for the for the cover looks fantastical so it seems like this is kind of a a fantasy theme, at least, collection of short stories. Well, and P.T. Barnum is like that showman circus kind of thing. So it seems like a magician fits along with that illusionist kind of thing. So cool to, cool to note. Um, the story itself, I liked the take. I li- kind of liked that biography feel because it gives it this the secondhand nature of if you if you have a character that's going to these shows and seeing these tricks performed, it's a little more like the mystery isn't being revealed, but we were kind of seeing behind the scenes sometimes and he- hearing how tricks were being performed. 
And I think that's interesting for a magician to sort of somehow within the biography for his secrets to be revealed. It's a little bit of that because I do think there's a little bit of distance because I, I got I definitely got the sense that like the narrator who was giving the history didn't know for sure. It was like reported. It was reported that this was how he did it. And this other person who studied it extensively claims that it was this or he was, it, it was very similar to this other trick that this other magician performed. Um, but there was definitely a lot like one of the ma- most interesting things about the story, I think. And I'm going to admit that, like, I didn't love this story. It, I thought it was it was interesting. It was cool. There were moments that really intrigued me. Um, but it, I didn't get super drawn in and engaged on a narrative level. And I think it's because of the, the format and that sort of textbook feel. Um, but one of the things that I think is working best in the story and is very cool is the di- the sort of distance between what the truth is and what the perceived truth is and how storytelling conveys what truth is for later audiences. So we're kind of getting the mystique and the myth of this illusionist, but engaging with it as if it exists in our sort of real world without magic, although some people maybe some people think there is magic, but like, the rational side of me is like approaching this as this guy was a, you know, quote unquote magician, but they're definitely playing with this idea of like, maybe there is real magic and maybe he did do real magic. And the evidence being presented is like all these people kind of believed in it. And there's a gray area that's left for the reader to decide like what's really going on here. And how the legend grows over time, right? When people see, you know, if you go see the show, if you're so fascinated by it and you believe it, you might go tell your friend and, and maybe extrapolate a little bit or like you might exaggerate the story a little bit. I also really liked how this this reminds me a little bit of The Name of the Wind, which uh, have you read The Name of the Wind? Uh, the first half. I've talked about it before. Yeah. The, and then I had to stop because of the podcast. Yeah. One of the things I like about that is it, it does deal with like the nature of storytelling. And I was getting the sense that Eisenheim, as he's being described, is a is a character who knows the power of his reputation and uses that to his advantage. And one of the coolest parts that is in the story that didn't make it to the movie was there was this whole sequence where first off, he like runs one, one dude out of town. I think he makes him disappear on stage and he's never seen again. His like actual rival. And then, or or, or did his rival make himself disappear? Who knows? Yeah. Yeah. It's unclear. Right. And that's the whole thing. It's like people, there was rumors Eisenheim did it. There was rumors that it was like an accident or he made himself disappear to save face. Um, But then there's this other rival shows up and they have this like ongoing back and forth competition where they're like playing every other night. At first they don't even address each other, but then there starts to be this like infighting and they're they're one-upping each other and doing the same trick but like taking it to extreme new levels and everybody's just caught in the thrall of this. And um, then there's the the big reveal uh, where Eisenheim uh, reveal, like pulls off a mask and re- reveals that he is this rival. I think his name was like Passau or something. Um, so he's his own rival and he's been like doing this whole thing back and forth, but he's both people. I thought that was really cool and and it didn't make it into the movie, but I, it was really neat. Something that I'll touch on more in the, in the film, but it's this idea of uh, like art being spoken about in performative ways and specifically with adaptation when we get there, the ways that people think of film and people think of storytelling in general and how it is magic and how there's almost like 
you're doing something to the audience and influencing them subliminally in ways and you're maybe there's some deception there and this idea of like art and deception and the way that like those two things are go together and sometimes it can be a little malicious and sometimes it can be a little just like more clever and just the way that those two things interplay i think there's less of that in this in the story there's a little bit of it but uh, when we get to the film you're kind of starting to see a little bit of that like you said with like with what rothfuss does this idea of like storytelling and the the nature of like storytelling with magic and storytelling with like legacy and things like that legend myth legend yeah all of that right um yeah and that's all definitely coming into play here as we as we hear the evolution of the character he starts one one upping himself then he disappears for like a year and then he comes back and he has this new show and this new show involves the use of like summoning specters and spirits onto stage and the effect of that is described as like almost starting a religious movement as people start to think he is this true, I don't know, spiritualist or something who can actually contact the dead. Because of this, the government gets upset at him for possibly like rabble rousing and, you know, leading people down false roads, I guess. I don't know. Disturbing um, the peace. Or yeah, whatever, disturbing yeah. the peace. And so a bunch of police come to his shows to arrest him. And then on the final night when he's going to give his final performance, he himself disappears. Um, and right when they're going to apprehend him. And that that basically ends the story. That's like kind of like the, the final act of Eisenheim is to disappear. It was a cool moment. And I can see why someone would read it and think like this would make for a good movie. Um, but I, I feel like there is a lot of narrative connective tissue missing in the story and it's because of the format um where it like didn't really fit to have it well we don't even really get a ton of his backstory or any context well we hear that he's a cabinet maker which is which does make it into the movie and like i like that a lot like the idea of a cabinet maker being particularly good at like hidden compartments that's cool um but yeah you're right other than that it's a lot of like oh he went and disappeared for a number of years where he studied the mysteries over in you know asia or whatever so we don't get a lot about him we kind of just get the snapshot of his life and some of the performances and we hear and i think another thing that you probably were pushing back against and i felt myself at times i guess i didn't really thought of it that much but when i was reading through how some of the tricks were performed it was a lot of like this trick was done this way and and like you said it was maybe somebody interpreting it or that was their perception on how he was able to do it um but it would get really into the minutiae of that and it would be like and then this trick you do this this and then the audience does this and then this and that that kind of was the there was like a few good chunks of that throughout the story where they want you to get lost in the in the magic trick and i felt myself like i'm like this would this works so much better visually i feel like you could see it (laughs) yeah that's totally true. It's like the pluses and minuses of each medium. Um, I do think the the is he or isn't he actually magical thing works well here. Like we're already at a remove. We're being told through the eyes of another character, you know, unnamed, but just whoever is like writing this biography. Um, so it works pretty well. I had a pretty good time with it. Um, one thing that it did do was set me up to watch the movie um, in a new light because I had all this information going in. I had a lot of these moments because there are a few moments described of like particular performances he gave and what his illusions looked like. And I was surprised at the number of them that made it directly into the movie. Yeah. Pretty cool. 
even the orange tree supposedly was a real trick that was performed. Yes, uh, I have heard that it is a real trick. Um, it is interesting that we do eventually see a diagram for it in the movie. And um, yeah, I have heard that it is a real thing. I watched some like magician reacts video like this was a I think like a year ago. Um, and that was like my my one thing about the illusionist that I saw and in that magician reacts video. He was talking about different tricks as portrayed in these movies. And uh, this one came up specifically the orange tree and him talking about how, oh, yeah, that, you know, so and so did this, or, you know, back in, you know, this this year. And this was a real trick and all that stuff it was re- yeah, very interesting. I mean, cool to know the, the the fruit's real and it's these mechanisms, it seems like it's it's very intricate. And like, especially for the time, like the inventive nature, I think, of magicians to like comes comes to mind. And and this this all gets tied up in this conversation I want to have about the film, because a lot of like Edison and a lot of early inventors were also involved in like early days of filmmaking and some of these techniques that came about with lights and then eventually capturing, you know, photographic images. Yeah. And Does, did they talk about cinematography in this story? Like he was like a, like an early cinematography was one of his things. So there there is talk and there's more. I'll get into this a little bit more, but there's this stuff called Fantascope which is sort of like how he does this imagery thing. And it deals with like projection and reflections and things like that, that, that people were using uh, supposedly as far as I, I was able to find is people were actually doing this um, for, for magical performances like this. So they were, they were bringing in this idea of the fantastical and things that are impossible and making it seem real. And I could understand people in the turn of the century seeing stuff like this performed and not knowing, having never seen projection or something and seeing this stuff happen, just being totally like, enthralled by it absolutely so yeah i mean ultimately i had a good time with the story i do recommend if you're a fan of the illusionist to give it a quick read because uh, it does give more context for the story um but if you're ready i'm ready to dive into the movie yeah let me read you a little bit about the filmmaker first so neil berger is an american filmmaker he's known for the fake documentary interview with the assassin the period drama the illusionist limitless and the sci-fi action film divergent based on the dystopian novel of the same name by Veronica Roth. I've never seen that movie, but I am well aware of it. Yeah. It was sort of like came with that crop of YA uh, novels like um, The Hunger Games and Mm -hmm. some of those other ones when they were really hitting hard and like Mm -hmm. turn of the 2010s. Yeah. I didn't. That's cool. He did Limitless. I actually haven't seen that either. Um, But another movie that I like saw the trailers for and I know what it roughly what it's about. You're aware of like, yeah, drug makes you a superhuman basically. Yeah. Yeah. Berger became involved with experimental film in the 1980s and went on to direct music videos for such alternative artists as the Meat Puppets. Uh, Berger approached MTV in 1991 with the idea to create and direct a series of promotional spots uh, for what would be the MTV Books Feed Your Head campaign against illiteracy. In association with Ridley Scott Associates, Berger directed commercials for companies such as MasterCard, IBM, and ESPN, and created a series of television spots for Amnesty International and their campaign for Prisoners of Conscience. So yeah, commercial work. I always think it's interesting to note when people move from commercial to film and TV and everything like that. And it seems that Burgers continued to work in the industry and direct. Um, he directed uh, some episodes of Billions. He had a couple of films come out. Uh, 2017, The Upside and 2021 Voyagers. Voyagers sounds familiar. How, how many of these movies have you seen? Limitless. I haven't seen Interview with the Vampire. I saw the first Divergent. The Assassin. What did I say? The vampire. <laughs> <laughs> interview with the assassin i have not seen i've seen divergent i haven't seen any of his other films i don't think billions is a show i'm aware of i haven't seen any of but i did hear that voyagers i believe was like a massive bomb 
I don't know if it had anything to do with with COVID or anything like that, but it came out in 2021 and it was like, I just remember hearing it was like one of the biggest bombs of the year. Who's in Who's in that movie? Colin Farrell's in it. Colin Farrell's in it. Yep. Movie called Voyagers. I don't even remember this movie. I, I have no memory of it. Sci-fi film, yeah. You'd think I would, yeah. Maybe, maybe, yeah. I don't know. I have to look into that because I'm curious. But, um, okay. So, so this is a guy I was not familiar with. Um, it, apparently, he's a little more well known than than I suspected. But I was pretty impressed with the filmmaking here. I actually think this movie looks really good most of the time. There's sort of a texture. I don't know if it's like a filter or if it's the kind of film they used or if it's a color grading thing. Yeah, sepia tone kind of thing, right? But they gave everything kind of a sepia tone. And like at times it really works. And and I think like the performances on the stage, like that opening with the burnt with the flames and it's it's silent. No one speaks. It sells the era, right, of of the time period as well with the, the color and, and some of the techniques. Like one of my favorite things is just that like in some of these flashbacks and they were using that iris closing yeah. transition technique that I just like is so turn of the century filmmaking like that's the early day like you you yeah it's, they're it's signaling that. that yeah that's cool um yeah i think this movie looks really good and and uh especially i think you know starting with that mo that bold choice to have a moment of silence where you know edward norton is like looking super uh concentrating up there on something he's focusing and he's he's clearly doing something and then we just have this crowd of people just like hanging on it right like they're all just hushed and it includes all these police and like you know Paul Giamatti's there and you're like what is going on <laughs> and it really does set the stage and like make you interested to know more um so i thought you know an effective opening and a bold one and i yeah looked it looked really good yeah so i i guess with that context isn't it interesting that i feel that this is kind of a forgotten film now yeah and I, I was looking at the box office for it as well, just because I'm like, all right, so this is a film that came out in 2006. Both of us kind of forgot about it, but it's got Edward Norton, I think, in a good performance, really, for Edward Norton. I think Edward Norton continues to be a somewhat underappreciated actor. Like, I think he's really, really good, but oh yeah, I don't know if I see him getting enough respect, I think. Maybe he'll get some for Glass Onion, but it's a very unusual role for him. It looks like kind of comedic. Yeah. He, you know, but I he, think he did win an Oscar for Birdman as like best supporting actor. But yeah, I don't I, I feel that he's like I, I have heard that he might be a little bit difficult to work with at times. And and but but he and he's also very selective about his projects now at this point. But but, you know, that's just hearsay. I don't, who, who knows, really? But clearly he he's good. Yeah, at, And you always wonder who's the person saying that and right. why. <laughs> but but every time I see him on screen, he's great. Like he's yeah. never I'm never like, oh, he's phoned that one in. Like he's he's always putting in really good performances and really is, I think, an underappreciated actor. I think so. Um, so I was talking about the box office. I'm like, you know, how many people saw this movie? Yeah. This on a budget of 16 million, this worldwide box office for this film was like 87 million dollars. That's successful. Multiple what? Three X, four X, yeah, or more. That's that's pretty successful, and it's and it's interesting because I, I did read that like it also made like 35 million in rental revenue in 2007. Okay. So like a lot of people saw this movie, and what is the so got some word of mouth buzz? It sounds like. Yeah, and what what so what's up with the disappearance of it? Like it's like when the movie ended, they disappeared, and so did the films. I mean, like, I think common common knowledge is, and this is something uh, that I my memory of it kind of happened is that it got kind of swallowed by the Prestige. I think yeah. the Prestige came out around the same time, maybe after it. I think it was after it, and same it was year, Christopher though. Nolan. It was this massive movie, you know, like, and and ultimately, ultimately, I do think it's better. Um, I need to rewatch the Prestige. 
Um, we might for the podcast. We too, might. Right? Honestly, that's a good yeah. one we could cover. Um, I actually love that movie. I, there, there are some things, similar kinds of things that come up, but but rather than this, this is sort of about like the deception, I think, of magic and filmmaking and the way that those tie together. And I think there's something about the structure of the of the film overall with the prestige is like and I, i've seen other people say this as well but it's sort of like doled out to you as a magic trick like the prestige is a magic trick being performed before us whereas this is sort of like letting us in on but it it, tr- it kind of tries to be um, it does yeah yeah so so i have some like it, my second viewing now going in with the with the background of the story and being like more critical of what i'm watching and like really paying attention um i immediately knew the twist now i know that i i it, some of it might be like memory of the movie um but i really think that i just like because i really didn't like unless it's like way buried deep in my subconscious i didn't remember what happened in this movie at the end um but as i'm watching i'm like okay this is a trick you know she's still alive uh we're in full spoilers i guess <laughs> um this is all not real and and when i knew that going in i was like are we supposed to think that that she really died because i started to think that we were supposed to be in on it and then i like after a little while i realized i was like no i think we are supposed to be fooled this movie's treating us as if we don't know oh i think that that may be the case but i think that it's also like you're in on it i think very clearly he's his character after the twist that she dies He's not as affected as you would think, and he seems like he's plotting something, and you're like, what is he up to? That's what I thought, but yeah. I don't think the movie, like, I think if, if the movie were to, like, put its audience into a, like, a a, a, a bucket of, like, what they think the audience is going to think, I felt like the filmmaker was treating the audience as if we didn't know and we were fooled. Yeah, I guess that's probably true. And yeah. It was a little weird, because, like, I... Just just paying attention a little bit, I felt like I, I was not fooled. But maybe like maybe that's yeah. some like we've seen a few of these magic movies now and we kind of know that like maybe we're more savvy to these tricks. Maybe. And and it's also like they've added in the element of a romance and it feels like this kind of film wanted a happy ending. So you're kind of like, what's the reconnection there? Like it, there, there, something has to give here. Like it can't be it can't end with him like what besting this this royal guy and then yeah. just sort of living out his days on his own well maybe maybe we need to give our plot summary yeah so we can know what we're talking about here yeah let's jump into it so in vienna 1889 a magician named eisenheim is arrested by chief inspector Uhl of the vienna police during a magic show involving necromancy later Uhl explains the story of eisenheim's life to crown prince leopold Eisenheim was the son of a cabinet maker and became interested in magic. He fell in love with Sophie, the Duchess von Teschen, but the two were forbidden to see each other on account of the former being a peasant. They kept meeting secretly but were caught and separated by force. Eisenheim studied magic by traveling the world and 15 years later returned to Vienna to perform. During one performance, he encounters the adult Sophie and learns that she is expected to marry the crown prince Leopold, who, it is rumored, is brutal towards women and even murdered one. Leopold invites Eisenheim to conduct a private performance at the palace. During the performance, Eisenheim humiliates the crown prince in front of the royal guests. In response, he is banned from performing again in Vienna. When Sophie comes to offer him help, they make love. Eisenheim asks her to flee with him, but she is afraid that they will be executed. She reveals that the crown prince is planning a coup d'etat against his elderly father, the Emperor Franz Joseph I. So the romance angle, I had a vague memory of there being a romance, but most of it was gone. Um, and as it was happening, I'm like, okay, I can see why they did this. It adds, it adds like the personal stakes 
to what's going on. Well, and kind of what you were wanting, right? Like you needed that narrative thrust yes. to, to get you more invested, it seemed yeah, like. Yeah, fairly obvious way to do it, but um, it's it works. And we see uh, this moment early on where they're huddled together and there's people looking for them. And she says, make, you know, make us disappear. And he's unable to do that in this moment. And she gets captured and taken away from him. And so I'm like, all right, this really sets him down his path. Like he's got to get his powers better. He's got to learn how to do magic so that he can maybe one day actually do this. And it does set up what happens later, right? Like where he does end up making her disappear. Um, so that was all pretty good, you know, and I like that. And um, I like the flashback where we get, it's it's playing with that, like, what is the truth and what isn't? As we see, like, this guy fades away and then the tree pops out of existence and like all this stuff as, as we're seeing the memory being told by the commissioner later on. And um, it's playing with that nature of fiction and uh, the legends that can grow around people. And that all reminded me of the story, which is like what the story is all about. So I thought that all worked really well, too. And I think it's interesting to note, like the uh, it's been kind of hinting up to this, but like the perception of an audience and like what is real to them and what it means, like wh- how it can still affect you, whether it's real or not, and how that comes back to storytelling as well. Right. Like a lot of stories that we're telling are not real, but can affect the real world. And ultimately, we keep seeing this this character tell everybody everything I'm doing is an illusion. Everything I'm doing is an illusion. And that's ultimately backs up. The fact that these things don't have to be real if people believe these ideas don't have to be real for people to sort of latch onto them and create movements and things like that. I think we see that with some of the people in the town, right? Like they believe these things to be real, even though it's clearly a show that they're going to. They and they buy into it and they they treat it as if it is real. And so it kind of doesn't matter whether it is or it is. Well, even when he comes out and says it isn't real, clearly people still think it is. Right. And that's that's that idea, that magic of storytelling. It doesn't matter. Even if you come up to me and tell me that XYZ f- film or book is is not real. Frodo never threw the ring into the into the <laughs> Mordor. It doesn't mean it can't morally and, and like like in mentally change my outlook on life and yeah. how I perceive it things. It feels real and, to you. That is an interesting sort of meta discussion. I do think there's like a little bit less storytelling and more just like um if you make people believe something strongly enough, there is sort of a runaway aspect of it where it's no longer yours and you can come out and say, no, 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 this is all a lie. And yet it's funny how sometimes that doesn't change anything and like people will still believe it. Um, we see that, you know, all the time now in politics and QAnon and bullshit like that. Like people get caught up in the fantasy and even when it's proven time and again to not be real, like they don't back off of it. Um, so I don't know if that was something that they were like getting into way back in 2006, but, um, (laughs) maybe, um, and maybe like just like early, I don't know. It's like, this isn't a new phenomenon. It's just like sort of internet poured gasoline on it, but talking about the same kind of stuff, I guess. And then this idea of performance too, right? Like we have this person on stage doing something using, you know, conceivably if you're, if you're a rationalist and you believe that. You're going to see a magic show. You're going to see somebody who's incredibly good at sleight of hand and performance work. And they're able to do something that you are like, how is that even possible? How is it possible that they were able to do that? And the way that these smoke and mirrors like are reflected in our entertainment and what we want to see. Like we want to see something that we can't believe and we never would have thought of. And that's sort of the job of these storytellers or these magicians is like 
creating something that we couldn't have thought of or, or believed ourselves, and, and like how that kind of smoke and mirrors, to, man. That's a funny phrase. I feel like that that's got to be referencing this kind of effect, right? Because absolutely, literally, yeah. that's what you know. And at one point, um, our commissioner even has it broken down for him. Like this is probably what he's doing. Um, we see the smoke, and then they're they're projecting something onto it, and it, it looks kind of similar, but not nearly as good. Now the person doing it says this is a very rough approximation. But it seems like we're to look at it and go, no, that's not it. Um, but I don't know. It's like the movie's the movie is a little bit trying to have it both ways. Um, it definitely is. And I do want to talk about that as we continue on um, as like one of the core tenets of this movie is the nature of the magic and whether or not it's real and the question of whether or not it's real. And there's an ambiguity there and like how comfortable are we with ambiguity in a movie like this? Um, but let's back up a little bit. I, I want to talk a little bit about the commissioner who is a very important character, is sort of the eyes that the movie is viewed through in some sense, kind of an audience stand-in. Um, he is an amateur magician himself and clearly, like, kind of fanboying fan. out yeah, even as sure. he's investigating. And I love that. Like, I thought that was really, like, endearing um, for this character who otherwise I don't think I'd like very much. And Paul Giamatti's great yeah. in the role, too. Just totally kills it. Yeah, he's good. And, like... Yeah, I loved it because like, oh, he's trying to use, you know, he's got his investigation. He's got his thing he's got to do, but then he's also just trying to, like, figure out how he does certain tricks. And then I, I think Eisenheim immediately catches on to that. And he gives him that little, like, uh, you know, the hand gets paler trick or whatever. And it's kind of just like a little thing. He's like, yeah, whatever. You can have this one. Well, um, and he kind of wanted to, like, get him off his tail. And he's like, you know, quit bothering me. But uh, the, the, in that same conversation, you get the, the part where Ul is kind of saying, like, your 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 performance it's it's high art and he's talking about it as art and i think that's the the permission for the audience to start thinking about like what is the filmmaker trying to say here with well and and it is interesting because i feel like a lot of magicians do talk about it as art it is definitely an odd art right because there is an there is an aspect of lying and fooling people <laughs> deception yeah there's there's all this deception yet there is an artistry to it for sure um and a showmanship and like all sorts of things that go into it so yeah it's a very it's a very interesting art and there is correlations to movies and everything else like there is a little bit of lying and showmanship and and you know ultimately i think it comes down to like you're deceiving somebody and then in order to ultimately satisfy them to ultimately give them a payoff to ultimately give them something that brought them joy or or you know wowed them so and this movie tries know. to do that so, you know, it, it all is, it is fairly tight in that sense, like thematically um, it's executing on its premise. Um, so the other, the, 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 I thought the clever turn on this character with the commissioner follows where the next like real interaction they have, these kind of thug guys bring in Eisenheim to this uh, restaurant and the restaurant has been cleared and Paul Giamatti's just sitting in there by himself, eating a meal by himself. He offers to get him a food or a drink if he wants anything. He says no. And then um, he has this, like, kind of flex, right, of, like, I actually do have a good bit of power. And he kind of warns him, like, you don't want to get involved in this crown prince. Um, I'm giving you the benefit of the doubt. You know, he says, what I'm going to about to say to you is not going to sound friendly, but it is. I thought a lot of that was good writing, and it showed that, like, even though this character can be kind of a fanboy, he also has a lot of power in this world, and um, he's not like afraid of Eisenheim. He's and he, and, like he kind of feels like outside of the stage. I am actually the one who has the power here, and ultimately, it's for his ambition too. Like he he is 
beholden to this other person who's outside of the jurisdiction of the law, it seems. Yeah, and they both kind of admit that it's like, well, you know, we think we have power, but ultimately we don't. This other guy has the real power because of class. And class is a big thing in this movie. That's the difference between, B, uh, you know, Jessica Biel's character and him. Uh, Sophia, I think is her name. Um, you know, they're they're of different social standings, and that's why they're, like, not able to be together. I like the inclusion of the, the romance subplot. I think it's adding a lot to the story, and it's making it so that you are invested in their character and their arc and what's going to go on throughout the story but i also felt like it's it it makes it more similar to other films that i've seen before in ways like that's i think that that subplot it gets familiar and it and it just feels like something that's taking away from a story that i was invested in but ultimately the payoff is fun but it's like this kind of oh they're in the countryside together and they've found this happy life and it just feels a little cliche it's like kind of reductive to a story that is otherwise kind of got this like twist and this mind blowing thing. And it's a story about misdirection and about magic. Yet when at its heart, it's a love story. There's a familiarity there and sure familiarity can be good in some ways, but like you're saying, it's bad in others. And you know, that is one thing I'll give to the prestige is it's like, that's not what that movie's really about. Although if I remember correctly, there is like a romance element, but like, that's not, if I remember, that's not like the main right. thrust of the movie. I mean, the main character in this film, like ultimately his his ambition or his goals is to to find a way for a hit, he and this girl that he's loved forever to end up together. And his his way to do it is also to bring down like the entire monarchy, apparently, and like create a religious, create a religion and like start an uprising and uh, all this and like have a really elaborate plot to fr- like frame the crown prince for murder that he didn't commit. Yeah, I think there's something to be said about this movie. Like, of course, the character is is moving at his own self-interest. But at the same time, there's a little bit of a thing here where he's like kind of doing right by the clearly nobody wants this guy to be the leader. If you knew the, the behind the scenes. And so he frames this guy for something he didn't do, but may have done. And and so kind of, I don't know, it's, it's an interesting thing to know, especially with this sort of Robin Hood idea of it, like this, like take down the class system. And so so. The only thing we know is that his one-time manager, who I guess becomes his manager again, manager again later on, has heard a story about how the crown prince once murdered somebody. Yeah. It's never well, confirmed. His, his lover, I think. Yeah, well, yeah one yeah. of his lovers. And like it's never confirmed, but I feel like Eisenheim takes it as fact, and we are supposed to, too. Which, okay, you know. But um, ultimately, like, he's he's just like shitty because he is royalty and like royalty is shitty. And like, I feel like especially as Americans, we don't like it. Um, but like, I don't know. I kept thinking like he, we're, we're, we're blaming him for killing Sophia, but he actually didn't kill Sophia. Now. Yeah. He slapped her. Like he's, he's clearly a shitty guy, but like, did he deserve to be framed for murder? Now maybe he did murder a past person, but like we never got that confirmed. Right. So, well, we know. had people in the crowd at one point who were saying the same kind of thing. Yeah. I, think, at one I mean, point. he does like, seem to be a jerk. I'll give you that. So, yeah. okay. And he's royalty, so fuck him. I do think that Eisenheim kind of decided to just, like, yeah. you know, do his own thing. He but couldn't just take, get Sophia out of there. He also had to, like, fuck that guy especially. Yeah. Uh, let's let's read some more of this plot yeah. to get to that point. At the Mayerling Hunting Lodge, Sophie tries to end her engagement with Leopold. Her body is discovered the next morning in the Vienna woods. An unknown man is blamed. That's the other thing, right? Like blaming an unknown man for a crime yeah. because That's he has the pull up. of the police force is pretty fucked. Although you could say that Eisenheim is technically 
blaming an innocent man for something he didn't do also. So <laughs> right. it's kind of the same crime. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. At least it's a guy who may or may not be guilty from a past crime he was never He at least is a, a woman beater. So at the very least, that. yeah. Yeah. So he deserves to be in jail. This throws Eisenheim into depression. He buys a theater and begins a new series of magic shows, this time focusing on the summoning of dead spirits. Leopold secretly attends one, during which Eisenheim summons the spirit of Sophie, who says that someone in the theater is her murderer. Leopold, unnerved, orders Uhl to arrest Eisenheim for fraud, but Eisenheim avoids jail by confessing to the public that his show is an illusion. Eisenheim is threatened that if he summons Sophie in his next performance, he will be in prison. Uhl attends the performance, and in spite of the warnings, Eisenheim summons Sophie again. Uhl storms the stage with his officers, but to the shock of the audience, Eisenheim is revealed to be a spirit when Uhl's hand passes through him. Uhl reveals to Leopold that he has found evidence, a jewel from Leopold's sword and Sophie's locket, which could implicate Leopold and Sophie's murder. Ull has already informed the emperor and the Austro-Hungarian general staff of Leopold's conspiracy to seize the throne. As officers of the Imperial Guard of the Austro-Hungarian army arrive, Leopold shoots himself in the head. Ull leaves and places Sophie's locket in his pocket. He is now no longer chief inspector of police. As a boy approaches him, he is jostled by a bearded man in a long coat. The boy gives him a package containing Eisenheim's notes about the orange tree trick, which Uhl has been unable to figure out. He asks the boy who gave him the notebook, and the boy replies, Herr Eisenheim. He realizes he was the person who jostled him and stole the locket. He chases after the man, but the man boards a train and escapes. Uhl realizes the jostling and the notebook are a message from the illusionist and begins to rethink recent events. He concludes that Sophie and Eisenheim staged her death so that she would be free of Leopold, with her ghostly apparitions being nothing more than phantasmagoria. Uhl laughs delightedly at the brilliance of their plan. Far away, Sophie and Eisenheim start a new life together in a cabin at a beautiful mountain. Eisenheim places Sophie's locket in her palm. Okay, so uh, one of the things I struggle with with this movie a little bit, and it's the movie is by design showing us things and never explaining how they're done. So my, you know, think about the sword trick, right? He gets this guy the 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 crown prince's sword and he makes it stand, and then people can't lift it. Like a bunch of people come up and try and lift it, they can't lift it. And then even the crown prince goes to lift it. He can't until Eisenheim, like, basically releases it. Now, this could be probably be done with a magnet, but we don't see any evidence that, of that, and it doesn't seem to affect anything else that's metal at the time. Like, be a big magnet, too. Be a big, strong magnet. Electromagnet, probably. Very powerful magnet. And so much so that it would affect other things, and there's, like, a guy who tries it who's, like, he's wearing... I think he's, like, a general. He's wearing a bunch of medals. So I was yeah. thinking, like, oh, they would probably be affected... But okay, maybe it's really like specific kind of magnet that like has a very narrow range or something. I don't know. Um, I, I can like come up with like some explanations, but ultimately they're not satisfying, and I feel like a little frustrated that I I don't know how he could do that. And then um, you're left to think, well, maybe he's just actually a magician. And the movie loves this. The movie wants us to feel like. Maybe he's actually a magician, I think, time and again. And one of the reasons that I also say that is that there are times when the movie uses uh, computer graphics to get the effects that um, are supposed to be magic performances that the characters in the scene are seeing with their own two eyes. And if, if I see CGI 
that tells me that like something truly magical is happening because they weren't e- they weren't able to recre- recreate it on screen without the help right. of CGI. So specifically, like the orange tree, though, is a real trick. They just happen to use CG for right. It. Or well, I was thinking about like all this stuff with the spirits. There are times like with the kid walking through the crowd, and like you know uh, his hand passes through him, and like you could tell this was done with computer graphics, right? Like a some sort of effect, special effect, um, and. Not the way that it's being done in like in person is my point. Yeah. Well, it's interesting, too, because like I said, this Fantascope stuff was real, too. Like there was some projection stuff that they were doing in that. I doubt that they had day. kids who could walk through this walk through the crowd, though. Like I, I would assume it would probably be fixed on stage and like probably one position. Maybe probably it could right. move a little bit. Well, and, and let me read something else that I, that I found when I was looking that I, I guess if you're an eagle eyed viewer and you knew what you were looking for, they have like a, a couple of times where you can see like he has the things in the workshop that could potentially perform cer- certain tricks that are unexplained, which is cool. But like you said, could be frustrating if you're not a person who knows how these tricks are done or something. Right. But also like the way they're being shown is is telling like i don't know i guess it's like they're trying to engage with the legend of it because the legend of it the people who were there believed it and so we're showing it in the kind of in the way that like the perspective of someone who believes it so let me read this bit that i found the the method for creating the ghosts as shown to inspector ool involving the projection on a pre-recorded image into a hazy background was actually a real thing since the ghost uh, by the way that was also the director um neil berger was the man who was like being projected for Ool. oh that's funny like the, the lesser <laughs> projection version that was a cameo by the director so kind of cool um since the ghost eisenheim conjured could speak to and interact with the audience he was most likely using a different method popular among magicians at the time a phantoscope was used to illuminate a real person off stage and the image was reflected off a mirror or glass plate creating a ghosted image the lanterns that Eisenheim tells his assistant to leave behind when they are packing up the workshop bear a strong resemblance to phantoscopes. So there's that that that's sort of our real world like way that someone could say like, oh, he's it's it's not all magic. Right. OK. But but it does border on the like you said, walking through the crowd and some of that other stuff borders on pretty much impossible. Yeah. And and I think that the movie is doing that deliberately, right? Because I do think they're they're trying to engage with an ambiguity of is this guy actually magical or not? Um, because the longer we're able to believe that maybe he is, the more we're willing to get fooled by what's happening. And um, much like the commissioner, you kind of have to believe in the magic itself because he has to believe that the vision of Sophia he's seeing is actually Sophia's ghost. Because she is deliberately dropping little hints about the locket, which Eisenheim knows is planted evidence along with the jewels that he's planted to frame the crown prince. Um, And it all relies on the commissioner believing that what he's hearing is actually a ghost, giving true account of how she died. And it also counts on him just like paying enough attention and not missing anything. It's very elaborate. Um the 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 how elaborate this plan is uh, does border on you know incredibly unrealistic um but i mean a lot of the times this kind of stuff does go this way but this is a very elaborate one that has a lot of variables that have to go just right for them and a lot of it re- relies on like the commissioner making very specific decisions 
And I wanted to talk about how you can kind of view this whole film as a one giant performance for Ool, his biggest fan, too. Like, it, like ultimately, the, the only, of course, the trick was to get Sophia out of there and both of them to live happily ever after. But the only person who he leaves hints for and he gives the book to at the end is Ool. And it's all this big performance for one person, this huge elaborate plan to, obviously, Ool's the police chief or whatever so you need to convince him so that he's not after you but then he ultimately like he's a man of the law but then he's been fired and he's realizing all this at the end and he's sort of laughing at it and you're like dude that means that you were wrong you were outsmarted by this person so in the eyes of the law you were incorrect and you just imprisoned or you know there was a coup there was a coup in place so he did inform of something that was going to happen potentially but the the idea of him then just sort of laughing and being a fan of it and being like, oh, you pulled one over the wool over my yeah. eyes on this. That laughing scene goes on a little bit too long for my liking does, too. Like yeah. he is, he yeah. is full on having a belly laugh for a while in that train station. Tough. It would have been tough to convince Giamatti to just like f- pull that off. Like uh, just trying to like, get the performance out of the act. And again, I don't think that scene works. Um, if if the director isn't assuming that the audience is also like amazed at the you know wolves being yeah pulled over their eyes and now it's being revealed and i can see that i can definitely see some people not having the context that we had and we also saw the film before coming in and maybe not picking up on everything yeah no i i I will fully admit the one thing i do remember is that that moment at the end the reveal was a surprise to me the first time i saw it okay so i i remember i didn't know now you know, I was a you know different person back then. I didn't and I didn't watch movies as closely. I think you know I was who knows what state of mind I was in when I saw it, but yeah. um, you know this time around was very different. And I, I just think that's going to be a very different reaction from audience members depending on where they're at watching the movie. And it didn't necessarily ruin the movie for me. It just was a very different experience watching it, fully understanding that I'm watching a trick from the moment they have the conversation because I was like, all right, we just laid out the problem. We need to be dead, quote unquote, for him to ever leave us alone. So now they have to fool both of their, they have to like stage both of their deaths yeah, and somehow fool him. And I knew that right from that moment on in the movie that that was the goal. The trope of like drinking something and being like convincing people that you're dead. And all, like they did, there is some medical, a little bit. there is some medical uh, truth to that. Like there, there is, there are things that can slow your heartbeat down like low enough to where, you know, if someone were to take your pulse, they wouldn't really feel anything. It seems that people in movies are really have quick yeah. access. I mean, it, I know? I believe Eisenheim knows that more than more than some of the other stuff that goes on in this movie. But you know, you're but like it's so like he's she's floating in a river, yeah, with that drug in her. Um, that's dangerous. <laughs> you very easily drown when you're in that state. Um, I did say I did think, and maybe I'm completely wrong on this, but for a moment, I when they when they first find her floating in that um, river, there is a famous painting called Ophelia. And it shows Ophelia in a dress, and she's laying in the river. Um, I don't know if she's dead. I think she might be dead. I, f- I forget the like story of Ophelia. <laughs> Sorry, I think it's like a Shakespeare thing. Um, <laughs> but I remember this painting, and I thought that maybe that the director was trying to evoke that. I went back and watched it a few more times, just because I was like, oh, is this really? Am I onto something? And then I, was, I, I pulled up reference, and I was like, maybe not. <laughs> like It's not that close, but I don't know. Maybe you're onto something there. So I want to give him credit for that. I always think it's cool if you can like take a famous painting and like somehow incorporate it into into a scene. Like just it's just like a little thing that like almost nobody's going to notice, but me occasionally apparently and I'm going to get excited when I see it. But it is like really smart by cinematographers to like rely on masters who've like, you know, thought about all these and and the lighting situations and and try to pull from that because it it, it creates for like you said really interesting imagery. Yeah. I'm not sure that, that this was intentional. 
I will say that, but it was but, close but enough. It, it, that is a thing that people do often. It is the thing that happens for sure. Yeah, occasionally. Um, and I do want to note that the director of photography, Dick Pope, uh, was nominated for uh, best cinematography. And I thought this Academy movie Award had great this. cinematography, like specifically. Like I, I was thinking, like this, it looks amazing. The use of shadow and light and that sepia tone, like we said, that evokes the time period. Uh, that was all cool. Man, there's some fantastic mustaches. <laughs> if you're a oh, fan yeah. of spiky, impressive, large mustaches, there's a lot of them. Yeah. I was kind of thinking like, damn, I don't even know if I could. I, I have decent facial hair, but I don't know that I could get the shape that yeah, these you people are so sharp edged and symmetrical. So symmetrical, though, and everything like it just is impressive. Um, uh, I did also read that some of the actors got really into it and learned and were trained by actual magicians for sleight of hand techniques. And Edward Norton had some of that. There were moments with Edward Norton doing some stuff where I was like, he's really doing that. Which is cool. Like, y- you love to see that, right? And and even um, there's the ball trick that the bo- that he does when he's a boy, like the flashback version. He, he like, really does that sleight of hand bit there. And, you know, when he's learning magic. Um, so I, I always think that's cool. And again, that sleight of hand on screen showing it, that magic. I, I just, I think that there's something awesome to the way that somehow invention and magic and film all kind of coalesce if you like look into the history of a lot of it. And I, I just think it's really interesting and cool to talk about. And I'd love to revisit it with the prestige because I'm sh- Christopher Nolan absolutely is digging into that. Yeah, I, I do. I am curious now to cover, we should at least cover the prestige next year. Um, because I, I do want to cover it at a time where this movie's still kind of fresh in mind, so we can com- compare and contrast a little bit. But yeah, diving back into this movie a little bit, um, it's very elaborate, right? So he he also like begins a spiritual movement by summoning these apparitions, and he's doing that all to set up this moment where he's going to summon Sophia while the crown prince is in the audience, he has to know the crown prince is going to show up because she's and he's in disguise. In disguise, you know, he's in this room. Um, I think it's like an exact thing she says, right? Um, has to land on the. Com- it's all for the commissioner, like you said. It's all performance for him, and it's in a sense like him trying to frame the crown prince. And and that comes to another point where I'm just a little frustrated, just from like I feel like I've been burned now by reality, where I'm just like this sort of narcissist with all this power, you're not going to shame him into committing suicide over a crime that he didn't commit. You know, like, and and like just the idea of like the police rolling up on him and him killing himself. I was like, no, no way, man. Well, it was because of the coup. It was because of his dad. It was his dad's people who had actually jurisdiction over him. And it was because the coup was like informed to his dad who, so his dad was like, not about being, I guess, I don't know, man, just, he seems like such a narcissist. I just feel like he's going to keep fighting this until the bitter end. I don't know. Yeah. You're probably right. In reality. It's a little easy for him to yeah. just, you know, off himself. Okay. I thought it was fairly smart. You set up a situation where the crown prince orders the police commissioner to figure out how he's doing these tricks. That is your task now. That is your job. And ultimately, he's unable to do it. But it really puts a microscope on these tricks for me as an audience member trying to figure out how he's doing it. As I'm watching, I'm like, how is he doing that? How is he pulling this off? But the answer seems to be special effects on the part of the filmmakers because, like, we don't really get answers. Now, I guess maybe there's, you're saying maybe there's some things in the background or whatever, but, like, nothing to, like, truly sell what's happening on screen. So, it, and once again, I look at the sword. Like, that's never really addressed. How is he doing it is left ambiguous. And we are, I think, supposed to see it as a maybe he was actually magical, maybe he wasn't. Um, and I I just don't know how I feel about that. I it, it, Ultimately, I do know that it leaves me a little bit dissatisfied 
And it's one of the things holding back, like keeping this movie back for me is I, I, I don't know that it is love the way that the magic was handled and, and the ambiguity of is it or is it not true magic. Uh, so I'm with you. I understand the frustration at the end to be like, I feel like we should have understood the tricks a little more. I th- like I get that. But I also do think at the end of the movie, if you're if you're willing to go along that journey, I think it's saying everything was a trick all along. It was an illusion yeah. and illusions do hold power because it's saying that with words. But the movie we've watched has not been saying that. <laughs> but so he him I think him giving specifications of the orange tree to the to the cop is him saying like it was all a trick and even like the the dying the projection like all of it was a trick all along and we see that because they are still alive obviously and you know they're not spirits. Yeah, she was she was really being projected. That's the only way that that could have happened if she's still alive. She's not a spirit obviously. At the end of the movie, they're saying everything was fake, but doesn't matter because the people were still tricked and things were still worked out for them. Um, but I do agree that, like, you know, I guess it would have been better to get a, one or two more tricks saw, shown to be like everything was fake all along. I just and- want some confirmation that he was faking the spirit stuff. I don't know. Uh, yeah, maybe even, maybe even if you don't show me exactly how it's done, just confirmation that it was a trick. More than just him saying it, because like that's not enough. Like I need to see confirmation of it. I don't know. Well, and the confirmation of the orange tree being a trick wasn't enough either, right? Like, because I thought symbolically that was him saying. No, because that, that's a very different trick. Yeah. And like, he, yeah, he, that was very early on. That wasn't the one that was like truly. I, I see what you're saying, though. I do think that that was like a, a the nod the filmmaker was giving in that direction. I yeah. just don't know that it was enough for me. That makes sense. Yeah. Because like you said, that's kind of the early feats where it seems like feasible. And then these things that seem impossible, he should have also been shown to them be fake and then that would help to you know i think like you said like solidify the the vision of being yeah like, Sh- you know maybe you're saying there are a few um items that might have been able to like help do that like show a few of those during during an investigation and like maybe show a space under the stage or something like do something to imply like yes this was a trick that that just would have i don't know would have gone a little further for me um, or, or there was a mirror somewhere or something that they find, just like some more stuff like that. The other thing I want to uh, touch on here at the end, the final fate of our main character is that he is now living in a cottage in the middle of nowhere with the love of his life, but it's a tiny ass little cottage. And we are to, we are to assume that he just like is going to be content not being who he was, like not being Eisenheim anymore. Like, I I guess maybe there's nothing stopping him from being a performer in the future, but like it did feel like the movie was saying, oh, he lives happily ever after now as, and this is his life. And like, I I just don't, yeah. Like I'm like, real life doesn't work that way. This guy has a passion for performance and for being this magician. And like, he's learned all this stuff. Like he's got to continue that. Right. Like I just don't buy that. He he's going to go live on a farm now. He's going to be bored. Yeah. He's just doing a one man show for Sophia. Yeah. And then eventually that leads to their divorce. Like he just like can't, <laughs> he needs her to, to, you know, be enthralled by his yeah. magic. And she's like enough. Uh, what was I watching recently? It was, um, Oh, I know what it was. It was Sandman. We were watching Sandman and, uh, there's that character who says, uh, it's David Thewlis. He says, uh, your stories always have a happy ending because you know where to end them or something like that. And it's like the idea that like if you go on, if you go on long enough, everything becomes a tragedy. And and maybe that's just what it is. Like we're ending at this moment where everything's blissful happiness. But yeah, a year from now, two years from now, five years from now, who knows what it looks like out on that cottage. Yeah. <laughs> maybe they're like, you know what? This isn't working out. <laughs> we're done. <laughs> 
right. we actually don't know each other that well <laughs> right we knew each other as kids <laughs> yeah <laughs> Uh, it's it, it is just kind of a very like love. It's like this, you know, star-crossed lovers with society keeping them back, and it's a happily ever after ending. Um, that does feel more appropriate for a for a romance. Yeah, classic um, romance story structure. It's a little bit of an odd fit for me in this movie. I think um, so too. But I think there were, there's a probably a good section of the audience who really enjoyed it, you know, and like went in on that. True, and that's very subjective, you know. So I'll I'll, I'll grant you that. So. Um, Ultimately, I had a good time with this movie, and I think it holds up. I, I liked it. Um, I noticed there was, like, he was swirling the red bottle a couple times. Like, there are the little hints of, like, things that the commissioner's just missing where, like, it's like, okay, that was used to do the thing that you're, like, investigating. So there were a few times where I felt like he, he was very clever when he needed to be, but then, like, com- would completely miss stuff when, you, when it was plot relevant for him to miss it. Like, the conversation in the train station where he's talking with this guy and he's like, she's getting knows what she's getting in for. Right. Yes. And like the commissioner doesn't put together that he could possibly be talking about Sophie, even though he's investigating this in this moment. And he doesn't even remember this conversation until later. And then he's like, Oh, that's what he was talking about. And I'm like, come on, man, this is your job. (laughs) So there's a little bit of frustration for me with that. And like just how elaborate the plan was and involved, like taking down a fucking crown prince and framing him. And then also like starting a spiritual movement and like all this stuff that had to go just right to make it work. But it's just believable enough to where you can buy into it and have a good time. I thought the movie looked great. Um, has, has some strong performances. So, um, ultimately, yeah, I think it is a good movie and I had a good time with it. I, I agree on on all counts. I think I like this movie more than I thought I did. I remember it enjoying it, and and walking away now, I'm like, yeah, I, I like this movie a lot. I, I think like I would recommend people check it out. Like I said, it, I think it's sort of going to continue to just be this this like I, I don't know what what's gone on with it, but I never hear anyone talk about this movie really. The Prestige just has like more darkness to it and more um, of that. Like I feel like the the magic. And the, the question of what is what is and isn't real and what is a performance and what is true, all of that is just done better in the prestige. There's some weird shit in the prestige too that takes some some logical jumps. Sure, too, that we'll get. No, to I, I we... do remember that. Um, but like I, I'm just saying, like I think when people are thinking like I'm gonna watch a movie about magic, they're gonna go to prestige over this movie. I think so. Yeah, I think the name of the director helps as well. It does. Yeah, that's true. Okay, so uh, last thing we need to do is cast our votes. What was better, short story or movie? You go ahead and start. So for for most of the reasons we have already stated, I think that the the film is going to be my winner here. It brought a lot to the film that I felt like in the short story I was missing. And it came down to sort of some of that narrative structure that you were talking about as well, where it it, it reads. I'm just more accustomed to a, sort of a narrative to, to get invested in and to go along with. And it felt like it was more of like this like historic retelling or historic biography of someone. And it was interesting to note like the ways that the the tricks still showed up. And I think there's a lot of good bones in the story with like the relationship of storytelling and magic and, and the way the perception of, of what an audience is getting out of it and what they bring to it. Um, but ultimately, I, I, I like this movie a lot. I think visually it looks great. I think the performances are good and, and they bring a lot into it that that helps carry along the idea i think that was set up by the story so for me uh i already said i'm not like the biggest fan of the short story but i do think it does the ambiguity better i think it works better in a short story i think the idea of like was eisenheim actually a magician or was it all truly illusion that question resonates for me better in that medium 
um, the movie has a bit of hokiness to it. It has that romance plot that I'm not the biggest fan of, although I don't mind it, to be honest. Um, but yeah, a few things that are a little too convenient and just a lingering discomfort I have with the way the magic was ultimately handled and feeling like the I was being fooled by movie making tricks when I want to be fooled by the actual trick that is being performed on stage by a person in this time period. And it feels a little like, uh, I don't know, dirty poker or whatever. What's the, what's the term? <laughs> Probably not dirty poker, but you know what I mean? Like it's like someone's kind of cheating a little bit in a way that frustrates me by doing it that way. So I'm tempted to give it to the story, but ultimately I do still think it's the, it's the movie because um, of a lot of the things that the movie does. Right. And ultimately I do think a lot of the connective tissue what, that was brought in was smart. The use of the commissioner as an audience stand in as a fanboy, but also a threat. And then also he has this turn where he kind of becomes a hero ish at the end, or at least we like what he did. That all works pretty well. So it is going to be the movie as the more enjoyable of the two. And, and ultimately I think the best version of this story. Interesting that like the, the Prince Sophie, like a lot of that stuff just isn't even in, in the short story. And to bring all that in, you, you could have, and ultimately I do think that the, the, there's a better version of this film, I think, if they sort of solidified a few more things and, and knocked them out of the park. But Give I, a, they had this this phasmagoria explanation, it seems like when you were looking into it, that should have been more in the movie. Uh, say that word. Reference a little bit how a trick like this is done. Um, they got a little bit of it. I just want a little more. I want a little more. Um, anyway, uh, I like covering this. Um, real quick before we go, I want to talk to you about our upcoming quarterly project. So if you would like to uh, suggest something, I'm going to have a link in the show notes that's a post on our uh, Patreon. Go on there and you can vote on what titles you're most interested in. Anybody can by liking the comment. So there's a bunch of comments under there. We've been collecting them all year. And whichever four titles have the most likes, we're going to put into a poll that will go live on Patreon on uh, November 22nd. And it will run from November 22nd to November 25th. And then on the 25th, um, you know, that'll be the final day. Get your votes in. Uh, and then basically on the 26th, we're going to start reading. So we need to know what we're reading. So make sure you pick something on there. It has to be um, a movie so that we can cover it in a, you know, like a condensed time frame. But we'll do one episode on the book, one episode on a movie for a uh, project of the community's choice. Um, and if you want to be able to vote on that final poll, you do need to be a patron. So, uh, you know, sign up at any level and you can vote on the poll. We'd love to have you on there. And your support helps us helps keep us going. Honestly, uh, we're at the point where our, our, you know, income has dropped a little bit this year. Um, and we want to get it back up to the levels of sustainability, making sure that we can do this without taking a loss. Um, so truly, uh, we're, we're fairly small creators and we would really appreciate the help. Yeah, and also keep in mind we have to cover the book in one episode, so don't don't recommend a massive tome. Yeah, that would just be a little easier for us if it's not a twelve you know twelve hundred page <laughs> tome. <laughs> not that we won't. If you put those things up there, though, we will see it, and we will come back around to covering you know some of that stuff in the future. So definitely try to get your vote out there just to see what 
what our community wants to hear us yeah. read. I know we're all tired of voting now, but we are asking you to vote one more time. I'm once again asking you, what is that, the Bernie Sanders meme? I'm once again, yeah, asking for your support. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but we're uh, also going to be off next week. We're going to be releasing a From the Vault episode, and then we'll be coming back with that quarterly project, which also will be our 250th ink to film episode so uh that's exciting um i don't know what if we're, you know we'll talk about it i don't know what we're if we're gonna do anything special or not but um yeah. it's, a, it's that's a big milestone huge number yeah. um and uh we'll retouch in the next one and uh, i just want to say shout out to sarah who uh recently let us know that she borrowed her sister's phone and left us a rating on both uh apple Podcasts and on spotify um, so that's the kind of uh, can-do yeah. attitude I like to hear. <laughs> so if you've already left us a review, borrow someone else's phone and leave us another review. <laughs> I love it. Thanks, Sarah. That's that's really awesome. <laughs> yeah, hopefully I'm not calling her out too much here. But truly, thank you. It's awesome. Uh, we loved it. We love that, and it helps get us up the rankings. And uh, if you haven't left us a review, please do so. And make sure to connect with us on social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, at ink to film and TikTok. We're still on Twitter, I guess yeah. we'll be there till the the bottom falls out from underneath it. Yeah, I'm I'm, I'm it's kind of burning down around us right now. Um, but there's a lot of really funny stuff being posted. <laughs> oh man, the fake corporation ones are absolutely yeah, killing me. The fake corporations, you know, costing costing like big pharma billions of dollars and all this stuff. Like, it's still an interesting place, even as it is all burning down around us. Uh, we'll see, we'll see. Um, but for now, we're still there. I'm also on Mastodon now, but I don't even know how to like give my link to that. Um, but that's just my personal account. I don't know if Mastodon's something that you'd be interested in interacting with, like Ink to Film on. I guess let us know, um, or you can just interact with me. Uh, that'll be maybe I'll maybe I'll I'll include that in the show notes. I'll I'll find a way to link to it um, since I am on there now. And if you'd like to support us on Patreon and and be able to vote on that poll, uh, Patreon.com/slash/inkedofilm. And thank you to Russ Bugden for the use of our intro and outro music. All right, uh, that's going to be it until after Thanksgiving. So we hope you all have a good holiday. And until next time, keep adapting. Yeah.